Welcome to How Story Works from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm concept developer Dr. Kelly Jones. And today on How Story Works, we're launching season one of the new series, How Story Works Conversations. Yes, the new series tackles the concepts that I've already talked about in the previous episodes of How Story Works, but with a learning expert and concept developer, Dr. Kelly Jones, at my side to ask all the right questions and make sure that my answers make sense, (laughs) (laughs) which is something that I desperately needed. Oh, my God. So no pressure, no pressure. This is going to be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) You're fantastic at what you do. Do not worry. So it is really fun, though, to come on to a podcast about story as a learning expert, because as we were putting this first you know, kind of idea together, concept together, draft together. I wanted to have a central thesis for the show. (laughs) And And I couldn't think of anything. I was like, I don't know. Stories is good. (laughs) (laughs) Stories is good, y'all. But after brainstorming, it turns out Lonnie had already said the central thesis for this in other, other venues. So we were able to put it together. And I am super happy to open the first episode of our first conversation with this thesis. Story is power, and we don't leave power on the table. So let's get to work. All right, so let's start with my favorite part of any podcast, which is the structure. (laughs) God, I love you. (laughs) Such a nerd. But I get so excited. I'm like, oh, how are we going to structure this show? And what frameworks can we use? And what's on the syllabus? And (laughs) I know, which I find terrifying. She was like, all right, so how are we going to do this? And what is this going to be? And I'm like, I don't know. And so she helped me figure it all out. Well, and of course, with the two of us, this is subject to change at any point for any (laughs) reason. (laughs) But for now, we're planning on four seasons. And we're going to have different kind of episodes. So we'll have instructional episodes where we're going to learn from Lonnie and ask questions and define our terms. We'll have fix-it episodes where we watch something and try to make it better. And we'll have interviews with different kinds of writers, which I am super excited about because... I've been sending some emails out today. uh, I'm telling you, it's exciting. It's going to be so awesome. So we're aiming for about 10 episodes per season. Uh, we're thinking 30, 40 minutes. But again, there's mm-hmm. there's really no telling. I mean, I'm almost laughing. It will be fun when we get to the end to come back and listen to this part and be like, oh, yeah, we didn't actually do anything. Did I said. say that about Big Strong Yes when we started our previous uh, podcast that Kelly and I, the first podcast Kelly and I did together was Big Strong Yes. And I think I said, oh, oh there'll be like 30 minute episodes. Yeah, <laughs> they're going to be really deal. short so, and not at all overly personal. Don't worry. Not at all deeply personal, no. <laughs> so the lesson that Kelly has learned is that I am not to be trusted. Like, you can't take my word on anything. <laughs> Trust me, it'll be fun. All right, so let's talk about the four seasons. So we're going mm-hmm. to focus on character, conflict, structure, and magic, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, when we interview writers, we're not planning on holding them to that season's theme because we just want to mm-hmm. talk to them about their process. We want to hear experience. everything from yeah. them. Yeah, yes. as much as they're willing to tell us. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that's kind of the big picture that we're thinking about, uh, which I think is interesting because when we thought about those big blocks, character, mm-hmm. conflict, structure, 
Um, I asked if we could start with character because to me, I was like, I don't know how to write a story without putting people in it first. No, and you're completely right. Like, you are completely right. I have been teaching this as conflict structure and character all along because when you're starting with analysis, which is how I always start my teaching, you have to start with conflict because that's the first thing you look for, right? Mm -hmm. So when I was teaching my students and I would start with analysis, you know, I was like, but if you're teaching writing, like if you're starting with a writing project, you have to start with character. So as soon as you said that, it was like a huge light bulb for me. And I was like, well, idiot, of course it starts with character. So once again, if any of this makes sense, you can thank Dr. Kelly Oh Jones. my God. Okay. You are not an idiot. But I say that because <laughs> this podcast is, is for readers and writers, but we yes. did want to structure it so that if you are working on a story or you want to get started mm-hmm. in that, then then we're going to start at the beginning and kind of go through conceptually. Yes. So. Mm-hmm. Yes, and which I'm very excited about. We may spoil some stuff on the way. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the thing. I've I've done this before, like I've said this before, that a really good story can't be spoiled. And like any blanket statement, that is not true for every circumstance. There are some stories in which the the wonder, that moment of discovery when you, you get this piece of information and it recontextualizes everything that came before and it's such a beautiful moment. There are times where that is a really beautiful moment. And to take that away from somebody deliberately, I think is a shitty thing to do. And that's where I'm with like standard spoiler culture. Um, The other end of the thing is don't tell me anything. And that I think is a little bit ridiculous. Not to mention, we're going to be doing a lot of analysis. You know, we're going to be talking Mm -hmm. about these stories and we're going to be we're going to be talking about the the story movements, the narrative movements within the story. So it's going to be real hard to talk about these stories and use them as examples for educational purposes without spoiling some of the major details of the story. So I will try to make sure that before any episode goes out that we have a little note saying which stories are going to be spoiled in this particular episode. <laughs> so we'll put that in the show notes. Um, but overall, I, if you're super, super spoiler sensitive, you may want to be a little bit careful when you come into this podcast because I will at any moment spoil anything for any reason. <laughs> and I reserve the right <laughs> to do that if it's if it's necessary to, to a moment of instruction so my apologies in advance and y'all been warned yeah yeah and we're gonna we're gonna include you know the names of everything that we are spoiling. yes yes uh, but what we're not going to spoil because it's impossible to spoil this because this is a thing of beauty this is a thing of glory this is a wonder of the world is defining our goddamn terms yes we actually have a a section in our script which is define your goddamn terms, which I have shortened to DYGT, mm-hmm. right? Which is one of the first things I believe that that Dr. Kelly Jones ever said to me. Define <laughs> your goddamn terms. <laughs> and I was like, what? What? <laughs> it's kind of like my favorite thing in the whole world. Oh, and um, it's it's beautiful. It is a, it's a thing of it's one of those things that I didn't think about. I would say something, I would throw out a term. I would make something up. Honestly, most of the terms I use are things that I just kind of made up off the top of my head in a moment that I was trying to get a point across and I'm like, "Oh, let's call it this. Let's call it a fractured tease." Sure, you know, because I didn't have a name for it and nobody else did either. So, um so I but I haven't defined all of those in like one central glossary. So, in various episodes um as there are terms that we're going to be talking about during the instruction phases, um, I'm going to define those terms ahead of time so that you guys know what I'm talking about when I just start going off. 
Yeah, it's going to be great. And a glossary just makes me so damn happy. I can't stand it. I know. Well, and in brainstorming for this and like really going through all of the terms and the big ideas and the concepts, um, you have mm-hmm. been subjected to having to do that with a curriculum specialist, so apologies. But Oh, it's the best. <laughs> it's the best. Kelly, by the way, is for hire people. So I'm just saying, if you're working on anything, if you're working on a nonfiction book of any stripe or if you need anything organized, like intellectually, uh she's gonna have a website yeah <laughs> dr kelly jones.net eventually will be available you gotta go there it's gonna be fun um, but <laughs> glossaries make me very very happy but yes. but in talking these definitions out some of them mm-hmm. have kind of shifted for you so some yes. of these may be new to some of our old listeners and also new to new listeners or yes, altered, slightly altered. Uh, Kelly, you know, because I've, I've got, like, I would define something and I'd be like, okay, that's what I mean, like, you know, generally, and I'll explain it, blah, 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 you know, and I've been doing this teaching, you know, for years, and it was fine, right? Except then I start talking to Kelly, she's like, well, that's not clear. I'm like, oh, wait. <laughs> You're right. And so as I'm going through, I'm, I'm working on the How Story Works book right now. And so I need to be able to define all these things like really solidly because this is going to be in print and like out there in the world. So um, so having to define these terms really solidly um, is helping me so much in um, in kind of like, you know, smoothing out the last rough edges of this narrative theory. So you guys are really the first to get like the smoothed out, you know, high class, high value. I don't know what's the what's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> How story works 2.0. Sure, uh, the, new shiny, the shiny new, the yeah, shiny new version. The shiny new. So yeah, so we're gonna define our goddamn terms. <laughs> yeah, it's great because well, I mean, for two reasons, right? One, mm-hmm, clarity mm-hmm. is holy. Yes. And and the other, if you want to learn how story works. Or mm-hmm. you really want to learn anything, then it yeah. helps to understand how learning works, right? Yes. And so I think about this in terms of tacit and explicit knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. so this concept of tacit knowledge comes from philosopher Michael Polanyi, who says, we know more than we can tell. And mm. especially when it comes to stories, right? Because culturally, yeah. we absorb so much that like... You understand a lot of how a story works mm-hmm. because you've been exposed to so many stories. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is like a pre-logical way of knowing. It's it's sensory based. It's intuition. It's insight. Mm-hmm. It comes to us through experiences. Yeah. Which is great. Like we can mm-hmm. we can watch or read and enjoy a story without actually having to break it down explicitly right Mm -hmm. but if we want to then turn around and write a story or write Mm -hmm. a critical analysis of a story then we have Mm -hmm. to move into more explicit ways of knowing and so that's you know that's what we can codify and define and categorize and put in a book Um, yeah so I just that it's kind of my favorite thing. And I know for myself, like I've been reading the draft of how story works mm-hmm. for you and, and talking through these definitions. And if someone asked me, what's the central narrative conflict? I'm like, oh, I know that unless I had to write my own definition for it. And then I would have to go back to the book and look. Right. Right. right so right. kind of that deepening learning from where you you understand something to where you really know it and can apply it mm-hmm. and can use it. Right. Um, yeah. 
and it's kind of my favorite thing. So I love that. That's, see, that's something I didn't really understand. You know, I, like I've been teaching for such a long time, but I've been doing it like really instinctively, you know. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm going through this process with you, I'm learning so much more about how to understand where my students are in their knowledge and understanding of this material and understand how I can better express it for them. So basically, nobody should ever teach anything without Dr. Kelly Jones by their side. (laughs) No, say I have this crazy theory. I think every one of us should have at least one class in instructional design. Like, oh, yes, if I got to take over the world, that would be something Uh (laughs) I want everybody to do. Uh, But it it does make it so much easier. Like, um, Mm -hmm. I'm taking a like, uh, new to yoga, right? I'm in right. starting yoga. And I took this class called Yoga Virgins, which was supposed uh-huh. to be brand new beginner. Uh-huh. But there's a ton of stuff that is just skipped because the person teaching it knows so much that mm-hmm. once you become an expert, it's really hard to remember what it feels like to be a beginner. Right. So it's it's hugely challenging, especially with something as complex and abstract as narrative theory, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. so mm-hmm. it'll be fun. Um But I do think it's helpful, like when you're if you're going through this critically, and you want Mm -hmm. to sort of track your own progress for any of the topics that we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, There are, there's a theory of four stages of learning by Noel Birch. And y'all, I'm not going to do this every episode, I promise, but we're laying foundation here. Oh no, I would love it if you did this every episode. It's brilliant. (laughs) I'm like, but it's so interesting. I'm like, this is so cool. It is so interesting. I love it. And this is all stuff that I don't know. So it's awesome for me. (laughs) Well, and stories are our oldest teaching tools, right? Mm -hmm. So story and learning Mm -hmm. are, are incredibly interwoven. They are. But these four stages are what we call unconscious incompetence, which means <laughs> you don't know what you don't know, right? right. You don't mm-hmm. know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Someone, if if 10 years ago, someone had said to me, you accidentally wrote a three beat, I would have no freaking idea what they were talking about. <laughs> you don't know what you don't know, right? All right. Mm-hmm. And then when you get curious about something or you get exposed to something, you move to mm-hmm. conscious incompetence. So you know you don't know it, but you see the value in learning it, Mm -hmm. which is where I am with a whole bunch of this stuff, which is why I'll be asking so many questions. (laughs) I love it. And then after study and practice, you move into conscious competence. So you Mm -hmm. know something, you know how to do something, but you have to concentrate. You have to work at it, right? Yeah. So Mm -hmm. most of the time writing, I slide between level two and level three. Like that's where I am. Mm-hmm. And then you move into unconscious competence. You have deep knowledge. You have a mastery of the skill. You can do it mm-hmm. without thinking about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there's some people believe there's a fifth level where you have unconscious competence, but you can also be aware of a new learner's level. And then you can oh, teach yeah. that really well. <gasps> oh, I love that. Yeah. I yeah. love that. Mm-hmm. It's super, super exciting. So it, it is helpful like when you're thinking about an area of writing or anything that you want to learn to kind of mm-hmm. be aware of what level you're at. Yeah. So then you can start kind of practicing and tracking your progress and, you know, nerding out on like the human brain because it's amazing <laughs> and it's great. Oh my God, that's incredible. I love it. And as you're saying, it, I'm thinking like, well, where am I? You know? <laughs> and like, 
I think I'm in conscious competence because sometimes it is hard. I mean, sometimes I do really have to work at it, even with story analysis. And I've been doing this forever. You know, there are times mm. where I look at a story and I'm like, oh, God, I'm not really sure. Um, and then I have I have some unconscious competence, you know, where I can kind of I can kind of do some of this in my sleep. But this idea of the unconscious competence with the awareness mm-hmm. of where the learner is like that's my aspiration. Yeah. I want to get there. So when I'm talking about this stuff, I am not presuming that everybody just understands what the hell I'm talking about. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's a great goal. I mean, and it's difficult for experts in every field. So yeah. it, it helps us, like, as the designing the show and stuff to hear questions. Mm-hmm. So everybody out there, send us your questions. It's going to be yes, great. Yes, please. Please. Yeah. And Kelly will help make sure that I answer them in a way that makes sense. <laughs> But all that to say, clear definitions are at the heart yes. of good teaching and learning. So yes, let's start at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Lonnie Danrich, what's a story? What is a story? Okay, now for those of you who have been with me for a while, we're already starting to diverge from where I've been, right? <laughs> I have, throughout the course of my teaching, been using story and narrative kind of interchangeably, right? And as darling Dr. Kelly Jones has sat me down and said, define your goddamn terms, and I had to sit and think about it, and I sort of consulted some people who I'd known had done some work with it, um, and I went looking around, I realized that there is a significant difference. So my previous definition of story, which was uh, an event or series of events with meaning, has expanded. All right, so story itself is just an event or series of events. That's it. So what I've said before, forget it, because we're gonna elaborate on that in another space. <laughs> Yeah. Um, But story is just an event or series of events. Okay. So then what makes the story magic? What moves a story from an event or a series of events to something we want to create or read? Yes. That's narrative. Okay. That's narrative. Narrative is a recounted event or series of events structured to evoke a particular meaning or experience. All right. Now I want to sit with that for just a minute because actually that doesn't sound like a big deal definition, but there's a lot to unpack in that. All right. A recounted event. Okay. That means this is an event, not that that's how, but like is being told. All right. So this is an event as it is being retold. And anytime an event is being retold or recounted, it is going through an editorial process. And that editorial process is geared toward evoking a particular meaning or a particular experience. For instance, a joke, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you tell a joke, it's told toward a specific end. And now I wish I had a joke to use as an example. (laughs) Hey, Alexa, tell me a joke. I'm just kidding. I don't actually have Alexa. So a joke, right, is a narrative. It is a, an event or series of event recounted, editorialized to create a particular meaning or experience. So a cautionary tale, like many of our fairy tales, like throughout the centuries, right, is a, a recounted event, series of events that is told to freak people out and make them afraid and get them to behave the way that you want. It's essentially manipulative, you know, shit happens. Um, Stories are incredibly powerful, y'all. They are incredibly powerful. Um, So a romance, a thriller, 
a mystery. Those are all an event, series event, recountered and structured to evoke a particular experience, which Mm -hmm. is falling in love or having excitement or, you know, putting the puzzle pieces together. That's an intellectual experience. Your classic mysteries were more an intellectual experience than an emotional experience. Like if you go back to like your classic Agatha Christie, you know, it's it's all dropping the clues and the puzzle pieces and then helping you, you know, letting you figure it out along with Hercule Poirot or whoever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now you'll find mysteries tend to have emotional stories that go along with them um, because people have realized that you can do more than one thing at once um, in stories, which is kind of amazing. Um, so any story can do both. It can do give you an emotional experience. It can give you um, a, a particular meaningful experience, a thematic experience, um, you know, and, and derive meaning from that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so stories can do all of these things at once. But that's what a story, that's what a narrative is built to do. A narrative is recounted and edited specifically toward the purpose of evoking that experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. And one of the things that you've brought up about this in in our brainstorming and in your writing Mm -hmm. that I really like Mm -hmm. is that a writer can put in meaning they don't see. Like you can intend one thing, but Mm -hmm. what ultimately gives a story meaning is the reader. Yes, that is really important. Um, And here's the thing, too. I know I've talked about this before. And for those of you who've been with me for a while, this remains the same. A reader is anybody who engages critically with a narrative, who looks at it and decides what it means, right? So you as a writer can put whatever you want in your story. And you can work it. And the more skilled you are as a writer, the more the reader is going to pick up what you're putting down, like Mm -hmm. deliberately, right? But they're also going to see things in there that you did not necessarily intend. And I know I've talked about death of the author a lot, Mm -hmm. this idea that like it doesn't matter what the author intended if a reader sees it then a reader sees it, right? And a reader, of course, is anybody who engages with any narrative. It doesn't matter if it's a movie or a TV show. I'm not going to sit here and parse my words and be like, a viewer, a reader, (laughs) whatever. If you're reading... The word itself, reading, implies being actively engaged with the material, and that's it. So when you are actively engaged, you know, critically, intellectually engaged with a video game, you are reading that video game as well as playing it. You are reading the movie as well as watching it. Um, And as the reader, you get to decide what that movie or video game or book or whatever means to you, and the author has no business telling you otherwise. Um, And that's, we get a lot of meaning that accidentally gets into our stories that a lot of times as writers we don't realize we're putting in. Um, and I've, I've discussed that before and that's a concept called terroir, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is T-E-R-R-I-O-R. It's from a French concept with wine that what's in the ground gets in the grapes, gets in the wine. Um, and so terroir with regard to storytelling um, is a concept that I've sort of developed which means what is in the culture gets in the writer, gets in the story. Stories. So there are a lot of things like right now you might watch something from the 80s or the 70s or the 90s and be like, oh, hot damn, is that a mess <laughs> of really, really bad, you know, cultural presumptions? And you would be right. Uh, but the writer at the time didn't realize that that was invisible to them. It was in the culture. It got into them and it got into their writing. Um, and so they probably did not intend for that to be part of the meaning of that narrative. But you as a reader pulling that meaning 
out, you're seeing that. So what you're seeing is actually the influence of the culture at work within our narratives, because a culture actually, um, I mean, it's almost biological. It kind of, you know, keeps its line going, right? A culture keeps itself going through the stories that are told within that culture. And as we change the stories, we can change the culture. So like I said, story is freaking power, y'all. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. And Mm -hmm. I will not get us sidetracked into a whole conversation about meme theory. But just so you know, (laughs) like, it's, uh, yeah, I'm like culture rebuilding itself story. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, Uh, I want to talk about meme theory. Okay, we will do that some other time. But I want to hear everything you have to say about that. Oh, it'll be so much fun. Uh, But but Mm -hmm. it is really interesting, because you also as a reader, Mm -hmm. learn how to read certain stories certain ways without ever being explicitly aware that you're learning how to read different stories yes. in those ways mm-hmm. and and I think as a writer you find the same thing happens to you that you're writing things that you're subconsciously mm-hmm. unaware of or whatever so it's just it's really a fascinating concept that story is us but it's also bigger than us it is. Yeah. I mean, it's so the more I think about story and what story is and what narrative is, um, the more it really presents to me as magic. Yeah. You know, I Absolutely. mean, it's just like there's so many levels on which I do believe that story is legit, actual, real magic. Me too. Absolutely. <laughs> and for all the magicians out there, let's, <laughs> let's define <laughs> writer. Lonnie Danrich, what is a writer? A person who puts words on paper. Like, I don't know. No, okay, I'm joking. Um, okay, a writer is any person who builds a narrative. And I think that this can be true of whatever form you're working with. Usually, typically, um, most storytelling forms, if they are not um, kind of live and extemporaneous, you know, um, they are pre-written. Somebody mm-hmm. has written everything down. Um, I have had experiences where, um, for instance, for a while, I was making these uh, videos on YouTube with Ian Martin from The Passion of the Nerd. He and I were doing these videos back and forth in a little collaboration and um and they were uh you know i talk about a subject or whatever and i would do bits to camera and um and i remember he asked me a question he was like are you writing those live like as you do them i'm like yeah but i was still writing them like i'm writing them in my head because i'm building the narrative in my head i'm not just i'm babbling a little bit but i'm not just babbling without a purpose like i know where i'm going you know so you can write on the fly in a moment when you're just telling a story like people who do this kind of um, extemporaneous like rap you know Mm -hmm. they'll just freestyle and go up and tell a whole thing they are writing in their heads as they're going so it does not necessarily always require uh, that you are putting like words in a computer or to paper Um, but any person who is is building a narrative who is recounting something to create a particular evoke a particular meaning or experience that's what a writer is yes so does that make sense yeah it's it's helpful because Mm -hmm. um, I actually had this assignment in grad school because I was my Mm -hmm. dissertation was about writers and my committee challenged me to define it and I was like oh my god you've got to be kidding me okay this is right how I developed my appreciation for defining terms (laughs) but you could use you know author composer creator but just for simplicity's sake we're going mm-hmm. to go with writer, but that's what we mean: right. constructing, that's creating a narrative. Yes, mm-hmm. so, absolutely. Oh, clarity is so beautiful. I know. I love it. Okay, so since this this idea of writer has multiple 
forms to work with, right? Multiple ways Mm -hmm. to create narratives. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was actually something that I had a hard time with at first when I was, Mm -hmm. you know, studying this with you is, is form and genre and how that plays into narrative or how it's different than narrative. So let's, let's talk about form and then let's talk about genre. All right. So form is basically just the mode through which an artist works. You know, Mm -hmm. it's a TV show. It's a movie. It's a novel. It's a narrative podcast. It's an essay. You know, it's just the the medium through which the artist is working. And and that's it. Um, And so when I talk about form, a lot of times when I talk about um, about like my my narrative theory, it transcends form. And what I mean by that is that you can apply this to a movie, you can apply this to a 30 second advertising commercial, you can apply it to a TV show or novel or whatever, Um, any kind of structured narrative, you can apply this narrative theory to I've gone through and I weeded out any of the conventions of any particular form and gotten down to the heart of what really is in that narrative, what the narrative is doing. Um, And you can pull that out regardless of form. So when I kept saying that, it wasn't clear. I'd never really actually defined what form was. And so I was saying this, I've been saying this all this time. And it just occurred to me, like when you started asking me the question that nobody knew what the hell I was talking about. (laughs) No, I'm sure lots of people did. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I study like I'm a deep studier, but I'm also a little mm-hmm. slow. So sometimes I, <laughs> I have to have things broken down for me. But I, I challenged like this, I got stuck because I was mm-hmm. thinking about this. I really was so intrigued with the idea of the meaning, like the experience mm-hmm. as meaning, right? In, in a narrative. Right. So I went to see the musical Wicked mm-hmm. and I had also read the book. Mm-hmm. And it was the same quote unquote story, right? Right. But in two different forms. And the mm-hmm. emotional experience of each were incredibly different. Mm-hmm. So I was really struggling with that. Well, when does story dictate form? When does form dictate story? Like I just got all mentally blocked about it. So breaking it down like this was incredibly helpful because I'm thinking, mm-hmm. well, yeah, if you want to tell the story of the Wicked Witch, in a political kind of way, you know, and that novel mm-hmm. is your form, then you have a lot of options. If you want to make it more lighthearted and hopeful, then a musical production makes a lot of sense. So like, it was just really helpful for me to break that down. Oh, good, good. Yeah, when you're talking about the difference between like a musical and a book, you know, each form does have its particular strengths. And I think you hit right on it. Like, in a novel, one of the things you can do is you get really super deep into somebody's POV and into their experience, right? You're actually living in their head. Sometimes when a novel is written in first person, you know, you're like literally reading the words, I did this, I did that. And it deeply, deeply personalizes that experience for you, gives you the chance to see actually inside somebody's head right in a movie or a play uh you're of necessity sort of held back a little bit so the ways in which you bring an audience into that interior experience will be different in those venues and Mm -hmm. then also you know you're right like being able to make it lighter and funnier there's something about the musical um the musical like as a genre that allows you through the music to take this kind of shortcut to whatever emotional experience you want to have music is amazing that way um so the the different strengths of different form are going to define depending on what you're doing with the story like how what you want to do yeah it's a lot clearer to me now and it's really really helpful um and and genre was another area where I had been a little 
Yeah. Confused, maybe. Um, But now that I realize, oh, you know, I um, am am fluid in my genre choices and I like stories that combine multiple ones. Oh, yeah. You know, that's been really, really good. So I'm going to let you tell us what genre is. Okay, genre is a concept. It's a hot mess, though. I got to (laughs) start off with that. Because everybody knows kind of what genre is, but it's sort of evolved organically from a capitalist (laughs) marketing, you know, like, uh, so it's a capitalist approach to marketing, where we will define something by a genre, meaning it's, you know, this type of book or TV show or movie or whatever, based on can we sell that type of movie, TV show? I mean, if any of you ever like, you know, seen a trailer for something, expecting it to be like a romantic comedy and you go in and it is not that that is somebody who has hoodwinked you and (laughs) used the trailer to use all the conventions of something they think that you'll want to see and then get you in the theater and then you're seeing something else you know Mm -hmm. um so genre is is really kind of a function of marketing but it is kind of handy um, for thinking about the kinds of things that you want to do and how you want to speak to a certain aesthetic. If you want to tell a noir type story, there are certain things that are done in noir stories that sort of give you that feel, that dirty, grimy feel, you know, that you want in noir, you know, um, and fusing genres together, which is so much fun, <laughs> like a noir romantic comedy. If you could pull that <laughs> off, I would freaking love it. Right. Um, <laughs> But I mean, stuff like that, like being able to put the genres together and sort of mix them together. So less than like this prescriptive, it is this one thing. Genre allows you to kind of go to a buffet and pick and choose the kinds of things you want that that sort of work toward a particular experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it really like whatever genre you are, like depends. I think mostly for me, the most valuable genre definitions are uh, things that define the experience that the writer intends for the reader to have, that um, a comedy is intended to evoke laughter, a tragedy is intended to evoke sadness and thoughtfulness and melancholy. Um, You know, romance is a story that evokes love, you know, that gives you that feeling. Um, But a lot of times we have, you know, quote unquote genres that don't mean anything like young adult. Yeah. It's a young adult. It just means that the protagonist is between 14 and 20. Like, it doesn't mean anything. Young adult is everything. Young adult is, you know, teen romances to dystopian horrorscapes to, like, everything, right? And I think that's why young adult became such a big thing. Because it wasn't defined by anything that held you back in your story space. You could have a protagonist that was between 14 and 20, and you could do anything with them. And the freedom of that for both the writers and the readers, I think, was just freaking intoxicating, mm-hmm. you know, to not being held back by that. Um, there's also some genres that are just like whatever, like the idea of like literary, you know, Mm-hmm. Like, what does literary mean? You know, and the idea that we think that literary has a higher value as a narrative than a genre story, like a mystery, a thriller, a romance, all that kind of stuff. And in reality, it does not. It's just a different thing. Literary, um, I think, is intended to be more experiential. You know, um, to be more about like what it feels like in this moment. Um, Sometimes literary novels may not be quite as strongly narrative, 
you know, um, as strongly dependent upon the specific structuring of these elements within this story to evoke this thing, and will be kind of more focused on the use of language, the ideas, the themes, you know, more than necessarily the storytelling in and of itself. Um, that's a different thing. It doesn't make it better than anything else. It just makes it different. That's what that does, you right. know. Um, so there's this tendency to war you know, between like literary novels and genre novels and, you know, like um, art fiction, art films and, you know, the, the blockbusters and whatever. There's all this kind of war because we live in a supremacy culture where everybody is trying to figure out what is better. And bottom line is nothing's better than anything else. Everything's different. There's a value. If you love something, love that thing. Don't ever let anybody make you feel ashamed for loving what you love. Um, and there's something of value. I think in every story, I have yet to analyze a story and find nothing of value there, nothing interesting to take away as a reader. And I think that when you when you look at the things that you interact with, um, where you're looking for something to critically engage with, something to read from it, then you're going to find value in everything. Yes, absolutely. And just for me, kind of as a mm -hmm. as a fledgling writer I guess I don't <laughs> No, you are right no look okay can I stop for just one second and I want you to hold that thought because I want to hear what you say and I don't mean to interrupt you except for this nobody's an aspiring fucking writer nobody's a fledgling writer if you write you are a writer and girl you write you are a writer own that shit please continue okay so as a writer <laughs> since I will define Thank my you. goddamn terms that's um, right baby when I was starting like every year mm -hmm. for 150 years I would start NaNoWriMo yeah and and it was quite hilarious every year how um how badly I would I would mess it up but right. I, I'm sorry NaNoWriMo for those who don't oh, know sorry. is the month of November it's National Novel Writing Month um from November 1st to 30th to uh 50,000 words in those days I just wanted to define that quickly you can go to I... NaNoWriMo.org yes. and find out more about it but Kelly wrote her damn thesis about it so I did I love you jumping in to be like oh wait we have to define this that oh, is Kelly my happiest thing ever <laughs> I feel bad. I've just interrupted no. you like twice. It's no, it's so rude. Great. I'm sorry. It Go makes ahead. me so happy. Um, <laughs> but it, every year I would find myself trying to decide genre mm -hmm. first. What kind of story right. am I writing? And every mm -hmm. time it completely messed me up. And and as I've been studying with you and, and kind of broadening my perspective, I have learned mm -hmm. I don't write that way because I don't think that way. Yes. And throwing genre out the window has been one of the most helpful things for me. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Yeah. Because what I find, and we're going to talk more about Mm -hmm. realizing the kind of stories you're drawn to and, and sort of yep. digging into that. But mm -hmm. what it comes down to for me was this feeling that I couldn't quite define. Like we had talked about stories mm -hmm. being magic and they are. Yes. And, and I knew that magical experience when I, when I felt it, but I didn't know what to call mm -hmm. it. And this right. is now my favorite of your definitions. So mm -hmm. you have named this for me. And this <laughs> is the phenomenon of narrative transport. Narrative transport, yes. This is the magical effect of a story to transport the reader's consciousness for a time into the world of the story where the reader's actual environment is no longer their primary experience. And I just want to stop here for a moment and say again, stories are goddamn magic. 
right? You've had that experience where you're reading something and then you are not in your house anymore. You're in freaking Hogwarts or whatever. And then the phone rings and you're jolted back and it is this jarring experience, right? But physically, you never left your room. Physically, you were just sitting there. You were conscious enough. Your body was turning the pages, but your mind, your actual lived experience was that story god damn magic i yeah. mean right oh it's it's incredible and i remember right? like i have this vivid memory of being mm-hmm. in the second grade i think and we were supposed to be doing math and i had Anne and green gables under my desk and i was reading and the whole mm-hmm. classroom just fell away like the sound stopped and yes. I didn't hear anything in the, like, I was completely in that book, mm-hmm. uh, which was also when my teacher caught me. It was the first time I got in trouble in school, but whatever. It was fine. It's fine. Oh, it's baby, fine. you didn't get in trouble for reading. I was reading during math. Um, oh. <laughs> but but it was such an amazing, like, it was the, the feeling of being jolted back that made mm-hmm. me aware of how in the story I was. Right. And what I've realized about this incredible work that you're doing Mm-hmm. Is as a writer, that is what I want to give a reader. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not about selling books or, you know, sticking to some genre or playing with words. Like, it really is about sharing that narrative transport experience. And yeah. as a reader, that's what I'm looking for, you know, in, in yes. whatever stories mm-hmm. I engage with. So mm-hmm. when we were thinking about the, you know, why... Do you want to learn how story works? Well, as a writer, you want to be able to provide narrative transport. And as a reader, you want to be able to appreciate it when you experience it. Because the more you understand about what transports you, the more you can find stories you love and appreciate them. Absolutely. And the stronger the narrative is, the stronger the transport. Like everything that I'm going to be teaching in, you know, in this course, in the books, you know, as I do workshops and all this kind of stuff, everything that I teach is really a choice. You can decide, like there are people out there who are doing amazing artistic work that don't have strong narrative. And you know what? That's okay. Like if you're providing this like intellectual, thoughtful, literary fiction, the, the strength of the narrative may not be the thing that you're going for, right? But also, like, it, it may also cut into that ability to create that narrative transport, to create that magic. So what this narrative theory does is it gives you the tools that you need and the skill sets that you need, the ideas, the, the consciousness of these ideas as you pull them into your work in order to strengthen your ability to create narrative transport. You know, so when you're able to do that, then you can create that experience. So that's what you're after as a writer. And for me, that's I mean, that's what makes stories magic. This is why I do what I do because of that experience, because I want that experience. I want to create that experience. Um, You know, so for me, that's that's why I do what I do because of that magic. But, you know, I want to say that a film, a book, a video game that doesn't have a strong sense of narrative is not a failure as an artistic venture. It's just doing something different. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah, but but for me, I'm in it for the narrative. <laughs> <laughs> so then for how story works, like for the nitty gritty how to, you've kind of broken yes. that down into craft and magic. Yes. Okay. Yes. Tell us and about craft. These, 
<laughs> right. These are two like basic ideas that I think that when you separate what it is about you as a writer, the you know what it is that you know and can do in the craft side, and what it is that makes your magic, um, it kind of helps you deal with each side of it, right? Because mm-hmm. all jumbled together, it's kind of hard to separate out. Well, I have this. Okay. All right. All right. All right. I'm, I'm gonna. There's a thing about me, right? That if a joke occurs to me, I cannot not put it in the book. Like, <laughs> I cannot. Part of my magic is my sense of humor, right? Mm-hmm. I cannot not put it in the book. However, sometimes <laughs> my sense of humor might interfere. This joke that has occurred to me might actually interfere with some of the craft that I'm trying to do, right? It might undermine some of it, right? Because um, if you put something in for just a joke's sake and it breaks a character, it breaks mm-hmm. a beat, you know, then you've got a problem, right? So understanding what it is that makes you magic and how to do your craft, I think it's it's nice to be able to kind of isolate these things so that you know when one should take precedence over the other. Um, but craft is basically the definable elements of narrative, right? The definable elements of narrative that you can identify, that you can look at, and that you can work with, that there are principles for working with these things. And that's character, conflict, structure, theme, you know, all those rules and principles, all that kind of stuff. So those are the things that lots of writers like to do. Like they they live by this stuff like it's a Bible, right? Because <laughs> because the magic is scary. Yeah. Because magic you have no control over. Craft you can, like, I can work with. Like if I know I'm supposed to have three acts and they're supposed to be about this long and they're supposed to have about that. Like if I know these these metrics that I can lay down and like, you know, line everything out with, that can give me, some writers, I think a sense of comfort, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you go wild into the blank page with nothing but determination and a sense of your own magic, (laughs) like you can go off and trust me, I have, I have written tens of thousands of words in every book that are not, they don't belong there. (laughs) They're not part of the book. I just wandered down a side alley that had bugger all to do with anything I was talking about, you know? Um, And I've had that happen because my magic was running wild and I wasn't really paying attention to the craft. So balancing those out uh, can be really helpful. Now your magic, Mm -hmm. right? Your magic, like the craft is the definable elements of narrative, right? Your magic is the undefinable, you know, you-ness that comes through in your writing. It's the combination of everything you are as an artist, all the things that make you unique. It's your particular sense of humor or pathos. It's your style of playing with language and ideas. It's like, I sometimes call it the the, the writer's thumbprint. Like every mm-hmm. thumbprint is different. You and I can both sit down with the exact same story beats, with the exact same craft laid out in a structure. And you and I will write completely different stories, even with the exact same characters and the exact same structure, everything. We'll write it differently because we have different magic. Right. So the magic is the thing that makes you different. The magic is the reason why you can retell Cinderella as many times as you want. And it's okay. People get all freaked out. They're like, this has been done before. Okay, everything's been done before. Chill out. It's fine. Nobody's done it the way that you're going to do it. That is not a rubber stamp for plagiarism. Plagiarism is different. If you're copy pasting, 
That is a wrong thing. <laughs> if you are inspired by a story that has been told before and you are not copying and pasting everything, you are taking elements of it that inspire you and running with them and making something different, that is not just okay, but actively encouraged. And by the way, anybody who says fanfic is not okay is wrong. Fanfic yes. is the best thing ever. Nobody has ever written fanfic for any of my novels, as far as I know. But if they did, I would love it. <laughs> it would delight me. It would delight me. Um, but yeah, so so these things that make you you are your magic, right? And the things that you can define are the craft. So it's the definable versus the undefinable. And as a writer, you've defined a way to mix these together and make them work. And it's hard, man. It's really hard. It's hard. But it also, mm -hmm. it, it's very hopeful, right? Because yes. no matter what kind of story you want to tell, no one else can ever tell it like you can. Yes. Right. So it's mm -hmm. really, really great. Before we go into the next segment, though, I do want to say, everybody out there, How Story Works Conversations, How Story Works is a free college-level course. Like everything that we do at Chipperish Media is free and ad-free because of the people who support us at patreon.com slash chipperish. So if you are getting value out of this um, episode, this podcast, or anything that we do at Chipperish, please go to patreon.com slash chipperish and throw in a dollar a month or whatever you can afford because it makes all of this possible. It makes it possible for me to, to have Dr. Kelly Jones give generously of her time because <laughs> I, I pay her what I can, <laughs> which will be more if you guys can give me some money. So... <laughs> But never enough for what you're worth. Oh, you're very, very Never very enough. Mm, you're very, very sweet. <laughs> okay, so rules and principles. Like, yes. Taught, right? This is super. I, I'm like, <laughs> what goes in small print in the syllabus and what goes in. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay, but I do think this is a thing. When I was, when I was first interested in mm -hmm. studying writing, um, yes, I got I got in with with a with a bad crowd. Like I, got I, know, I got in with a bad crowd. Um, I deeply deeply yeah. regret my misconceptions <laughs> and misdirections <laughs> because I was trying to follow the rules. And baby, I'm just mm -hmm. not a rules kind of girl, and it did not work. Yeah. So yeah. I like I like your take on rules and principles. <laughs> Right. And the thing that's nice is that some people are rules writers. Mm -hmm. And this will work for you. If you want to take a principle and view it as a rule that it has to be this way, go ahead. It'll still work for you. You know, like it's still going to work. But if you understand it as a principle, it has a little more flexibility. Um, so a rule is strict as inflexible. Like you must do it this way. It is a rule. That is it. Right. Um, but a principle is something you do to obtain an outcome. The outcome is important. How you get there really isn't. You know, mm -hmm. it's just that a principle, if you follow these principles, it'll get you there, you know. Um, so like in the course of the podcast, right, in the course <laughs> of many podcasts, I might have at one point said no prologues, right? Yep. <laughs> Which is restrictive and not always true. I'm going to get to that in just a minute. But anyway, generally, my general rule of thumb is no prologues. And here's my reason why. A prologue, pro means before, log means the word. So literally it means before the word, is before the story starts. It is what has happened in the past. You don't want your introduction to your reader to be like, oh, okay. Here's what happened all these years ago, and it's a setup for what happens later, which is what's really important. But I'm starting with this because, uh, because I wrote it and I like it. 
right? That's not necessarily a good use of your reader's time. Remember that if you want to achieve narrative transport, you really want to make your story as narratively efficient as possible. Because often prologues are just things from the past that a writer wrote during their discovery phase. And if a writer doesn't know it's a discovery phase, we will talk about discovery. Put a pin in that, people. I don't have all day here, but we will talk about discovery when we get there. <laughs> but a lot of times people will write something when they're discovering their story and they like it and they're like, oh, let me just put it in as a prologue. And that's great and everything, you know, because I'm not saying that all prologues are poorly written. They can be brilliantly written. It has nothing to do with the quality of the writing. It has to do with how effective and how efficient your narrative transport is. And because a prologue puts off starting your story, often puts off introducing your protagonist, um, it's just, it makes for a slow start to a story. Generally, in most cases. The reason for that is because your story starts when your conflict starts. And if you're just setting up things that will come on later down the line, usually starting with someone who isn't your protagonist, it just puts off the introduction to the protagonist. It slows down your story. And the beginning is usually a little slow anyway. So if you're going to have a prologue, you really need to justify it. Now, I know I usually say no prologues, and that's it. Right. Because going through all the ways in which you can justify a prologue is just a long thing. But there are times when a prologue may actually work for you. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, if you are a rules person, you can just look at this and be like, nope, that's a prologue. I'm going to skip it. Right. Because you know that it's going to slow down your story. If you're a principles person, you can say, well, I need this prologue because it's a fairy tale and fairy tales have prologues built in as part of the aesthetic. Readers coming to a fairy tale will understand that and it won't slow it down for them. Plus, my audience is mostly children. If they see that the mother is evil from the beginning, it won't be traumatizing to them after they bond with her during the early parts of the story. When we're my protagonist POV and my protagonist doesn't realize she's evil yet. So if you understand the principle, you can put in a justified prologue, which is what they did for Tangled. That is actually an explanation of Disney's Tangled from 2010. Uh, they open with that prologue, and I think that there are enough reasons to justify that prologue uh, that it actually works in that particular circumstance, right? So you're still able to achieve that narrative transport. You are actively trying to not traumatize these children mm -hmm. when they realize that the very nice mother that they thought was very nice is actually very evil and that's a whole problem right if we know she's evil from the beginning that makes that a lot easier and there is that fairy tale aesthetic so i think that that is a circumstance in which the principles of the reason why i would say no prologue you can outweigh what you lose from having a prologue with what you gain from having this specific prologue in this specific instance. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I love it because, okay. it's, I mean, it's kind of a running joke between you and me because I love yeah. prologues. <laughs> like, I, I know. I really, really, really like them. But now I know why because I am primarily mm -hmm. drawn to fairy tales or fairy tale type oh, stories. Oh, interesting. Right? <gasps> Interesting. Now I have a reason because I could never understand why you would like the <laughs> Well, that's why. Because now that I understand more about the stories I'm drawn to, yes. then that aesthetic makes more sense to me because I I've, I've always liked prologues. So every time you've ever said no mm -hmm. prologues, I'm in the back like, you know, <laughs> sticking my tongue out at you or whatever. Um, but it makes a lot of sense now yeah. because it fits with the aesthetic that that I appreciate. So like I understand right. why I like them, which is really, really cool. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, no, I think that's great. And again, I'm not saying that you can't have a prologue, but you do need to justify it because you are going to lose something from your narrative efficiency. And if you're going to lose something, be damn sure that that prologue pays for its fare. Right. You know, pays for its place in there. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what's so helpful, right? Because once you understand rules and the principles behind them, then you're choosing which rules you want to apply. Exactly. And you know that if you're breaking a rule that you can find a way around it to work, or I'm sorry, if you're breaking a principle. Right. Again, these are not rules. If you want to view them as rules, you absolutely may. But they are not. They are principles. And if you are able to achieve what that principle achieves you know, um, then you can do it. If you're able to um, to have enough reasons why a prologue being a bad idea works for your particular story, then that's great. But just make sure that you know and that you're doing it consciously. You're not just like, oh, I wrote this and I like it and I need a few more words in the beginning, so I'm going to put that in. Like, you know, you have to make sure if you're going to put it in that you have a reason for it and that you're doing it as a conscious choice. Yeah. Yeah, and well, and understanding what drives your conscious choice, mm-hmm. right, is yep. is really important because yep. every writer is different. Yes, every writer is different. Um, some writers work better with rules. I mean, this is how it is. This is how I'm going to write it. I got something I can put my back up against. Um, and some writers work better with flexibility, like being constricted by rules just shuts down their creativity. So here's the thing. Again, like I said, if you want to use, if you want to look at these principles as rules, by all means, go ahead with my blessing. They'll work for you. If you want to look at them as principles and you can find a way to work around them and outsmart you know, all of this stuff, then absolutely do it. But you need to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. But the most important thing, the absolute most important thing for any writer is to know who you are and work with yourself instead of against yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, for instance, like I'm a pantser, right? I'm one of these people that I, I go in and I like decide I'm going to tell a story. I get an idea of a character or whatever. I have no idea what's going to happen. I just start writing and then we'll see what happens, which is why I end up going, you know, 10,000 words off the track, you know, for a <laughs> while before I realize that I'm, this isn't where my story is going, you know, um, because I just do that. Other people, they're plotters. They like to plan everything out, right? You know, um, and so when I, I was early in my writing career, I would look at my friends who were plotters and I'd be like, oh, I want to be a plotter. Like they know what's going to happen. They have spreadsheets and index cards. They have spreadsheets. Everything's so organized and it's wonderful. But like it wasn't the kind of writer that I was. So I would try to like plan everything out and plot everything out and spend all this time. And then I would just throw it out the window as soon as I got started because I'm like, oh, no, I'd rather go here, you know, Mm -hmm. with this. Um, And knowing who you are and accepting who you are. I think in life in general, but, you know, I'm not qualified to give you life advice. I'm going to give you writing advice. Um, As a writer, knowing who you are, accepting that and honoring that and working with that instead of being a principles person that's like, no, I need to follow these rules because these are the rules and those are the rules and that's it. They're rules. Right. And then going against your essential nature, you know, work with your essential nature, you know, and if you want to be a successful writer and by successful, I mean a writer who writes. I will talk about success at some point. (laughs) But you have to work with yourself. You being you is what makes your writing yours, you know? So if you're a rules person, fine. If you're a plotter, fine. If you're not, be what you are, honor that, and find a way to make that work for you instead of trying to work against yourself. Yeah. Well, and it's so helpful. And it's one of the reasons I love podcasts like this, because I think the Mm -hmm. more people share 
their process and they share what yes. works for them, the mm-hmm. more doors it opens for everyone. Because, right. and I know like you and I talk about this all the time because I've been trying to figure out, you know, what kind of writer am I? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And, and what I've learned, and there are things about this I desperately wish I could change, but I yeah. know I have to write a lot to figure out what I'm writing about. So yeah, that's if, your discovery writing. There. Yeah. That is all right. Mm-hmm. But if I'm supposed to write something that that's 500 words, my first draft <laughs> is going to be 2000. And then okay. I got to cut that shit down. I, mm-hmm. I wish it was not that way, but it is. Lots of writers write like that. Yeah. But I was mm-hmm. I was listening to an interview with Jasper Ford because one oh, of yeah? the things, oh, and I, I love his work, but one of the things that I've struggled with is I've always thought the way stories come to me was wrong because mm-hmm. I don't get characters in my head. I don't get right. plots, right? I get mm-hmm. like scenarios. Like mm-hmm. I... Woke up one day and thought, I want to write a book about a world where everybody's dreams are recorded and analyzed and you can stream them and subscribe to them like on YouTube and like whatever. No characters are in there. I don't have any mm-hmm. conflict. It's just an <laughs> idea, right? Right. And yeah. that is how stuff always comes to me and it never makes any sense. Well, mm-hmm. in listening to Jasper Ford, he mm-hmm. he writes that way. And yeah. he was the only other writer I'd ever heard describe it. And he, he says he gives himself a narrative challenge. Like for one of his books, Ooh. his challenge was write a world in which humans have always hibernated. And he took <laughs> that idea and turned it into a novel. And just hearing oh. him talk about that process was so freeing and encouraging for me. Oh, I love it. You know, it was really, mm-hmm. really great. So if you don't know yet what kind of writer mm-hmm. you are... How do you find out? Oh, you know what? That's a really interesting question. And the only answer I have to that is kissing frogs, is trying different things. Uh, But very quickly, though, as you mentioned Jasper Ford, um, before we leave that, I want to mention that the air affair, for anybody who's read the air affair, Mm -hmm. is literal narrative transport. That is what the whole book is about. Yes. Because they're actually going into the books and into the stories in the books. So I just wanted to mention that because I think that's really cool and I love Jasper Ford. Oh, my But back to finding out what kind of writer you are. Uh, Basically, you have to kiss frogs. You have to try different things, right? Um, You will find that when you sit down, you naturally tend towards certain, like you, like ideas come to you as these uh, premises more than characters or story movement or particular narrative things like that. And that is fine. I actually know a lot of writers who write that way, Mm -hmm. who they come up with an idea, like just a general idea, and then they start building within that. Um, Honestly, you can build on anything. You can start with anything. Whatever it is you as a writer start with is absolutely the right and perfect thing for you as a writer to start with. So some people start with character. I usually start with character. Uh, Some people start with plot. Some people start with concept. You know, Um, people start with a scene. A scene will just pop in their head and then they'll try to figure it out from there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you don't really know. And so that's where a lot of that discovery. I know I've talked about discovery writing a bit and discovery drafting and revision are the three phases of writing. We will talk about that in detail later on. Um, But uh, but discovery writing is where you discover not just who you are as a writer, you know, where you sit down. Discovery writing is where you just sit down and start writing about this concept without any intent of it actually ending up in the book. 
book, you're just doing it for yourself to kind of give yourself a sense of what it is that you're trying to do. So as you write that discovery writing, you'll get a sense of where you start and what kind of writer you are. So some people start plotting out like post-it notes or index cards or, you know, whatever. Um, and if you start doing that, if you feel you need to do that in order to get started, then you, my dear, are a plotter. You'll discover what kind of writer you are by what comes naturally to you. What is the easiest part? You know, what is it that comes most naturally to you? And that's the kind of writer you are. And as you discover that, then you can find a way to work with the kind of writer you are rather than against the kind of, rather than trying to make yourself into a writer that you are not because somebody you love and respect, somebody whose work you love and respect does it a different way and you want to be like them. So you're like, well, let me do it their way. Uh, that's not how that's going to work for you. And it shouldn't be how it works for you because while they are wonderful and lovely and I'm sure just absolutely geniuses, right? They come to their genius through a different path. You come to your genius through a path that is your own. And figuring out what your path is, is a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of kissing frogs. Um, you kind of play with different things. And your writing process, like, you know, do you dive in and start writing like a pantser? Do you plot like a plotter? Are you somewhere in the middle in that spectrum? Because it is not a binary thing. Um, you know, where you are, uh, how you work, what tools you need to work. Some people like to dictate their novels. Some people like to write them longhand. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a book where I got up every day at four o'clock in the morning and I wrote from four to seven every single morning. Um, and then I've had books where I wrote at seven o'clock every night, every single night. So my process would change from book to book. Mm -hmm. I would find that like the, the little things that I did would change from book to book. So you're always going to be kissing frogs. The way that you write is going to change as you change and as you grow as a writer. The important thing is to work with the momentum that you already have rather than trying to change yourself into a different kind of writer. No one kind of writer is better than the other. No one path to this magic of narrative transport is better than any other. In the end, we all do the same thing. We have this final product that we've created, this final story that we have written. And at that point, it's all the same. So how you get there, you should be as kind to yourself and work with your own personal momentum as much as possible. Yep, absolutely. Okay, I, I just, I'm so excited about all these terms that you've defined today. Like, this makes me so Thank happy. Thank you for making me define them. And I can tell you right now, I am absolutely certain that there are a bunch of people who have been listening to this from the beginning who are like, thank God Kelly is here. Oh. Because I have been... I, I just talk about this stuff. And again, it's like that, that you know, you're talking about those like levels of, of expertise, mm -hmm. you know, that like, I know what I'm talking about. And it's very clear to me. Yeah. <laughs> so well, you know learning with stuff. you how, it, yeah, how it can be seen from other people is so valuable. Well, and you know this stuff so deeply and you're such a great writer and it comes to you so naturally. Oh, so like you. it's, I'm, I learned so much from these conversations with you. Um, so we, we had thought about kind of the idea of some kind of practical exercise at the end of, yes. of the episodes. And that'll that'll be interesting to try to kind of figure out how to how to do that every single time. Yeah, I'm generally not a homework giver. Mm -hmm. I know that you love that. I, I do. generally don't give homework, but I, I find that I find that interesting. And so I like I like that as an exercise for me too to think about like if I'm talking about these concepts, like what can someone do to kind of play around with that? Yeah. So for this first one, I was thinking about just suggesting some of the exercises I've been doing, which are very informal. Yeah. 
but just simply trying to think about what kind of stories I love and why. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like, again, understanding what you're drawn to, what aesthetics you appreciate is, is kind of a bigger picture yeah. way of thinking about it. Not genre, yeah. not form, but just why do you what love? What do you love? Yeah. yeah. Like, what do you love and why do you love it? And then maybe mm-hmm. those stories will start to have some things in common. Um, yeah. Which is, which can Ooh, I be. I love that. Right? Making a be. list of the things that you love and trying to find the common thread in them. Ooh, yeah. that's a really good one. Yeah, that might be kind of fun. Can um, I steal that as this week's exercise? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay, everybody. You heard the lady. This is what you do. Look at all of your favorite stories. Try to figure out what the common thread is between them and what that tells you about you as both a reader and a writer. Okay. Absolutely. Fantastic. So talking about what we love, we we yes. like to close a podcast with a favorite part. Uh, right. It's kind of hard to do that with the topics that we have now. So instead, we're going to close <laughs> out with the love what you love. What do you love right now, baby? Oh, you know what I've been really loving is Schitt's Creek. Ah. Um, I've been hearing about it for years, right? You know, everybody's like, oh, Schitt's Creek, Schitt's Creek. And I'm like, I don't even. And then I started watching it on Netflix and I got all caught up. And then I'm, I've been watching it as it comes on, watching it weekly, which, by the way, for me is a huge, like, I don't watch anything weekly. <laughs> right. I don't do any of that. I watch, I binge it when I've got the time all at once. Um, but Schitt's Creek, it starts out as, it seems like one of these shows that's like terrible people being terrible, which I've gotten my fill of mm-hmm. in recent years, you know. Um, so I avoided it for a while. And then I started watching it. And it is one of the sweetest, most just lovely. It is it is basically a situation comedy about love. Hmm. That's all I can say is that that's just that's at the heart of uh, no pun intended at the heart of everything <laughs> in this in this story. It is about love between people, between, you know, family members and friends and, and community. And um, and it's told with this somewhat cynical, you know, perspective, uh-huh. which I also really love. Right. Um, so it has been delighting me. And I have watched the whole thing through twice. Wow. And I'm wow. still enjoying it. So, yeah, it's been really fun. So what about you? What are you loving right now? Well, I am loving a book I just finished uh, called mm-hmm. the, S- the Starless Sea by Aaron Morgenstern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it is so goddamn beautiful. I can't even, oh. like, I can't even tell you. This is basically a fairy tale within a fairy tale. Yeah, um, she does that stuff, right? Because yes. she was what she wrote the Night Circus. The Night that Circus. was a NaNoWriMo yes. novel, yep. by the way. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Which, which I love also. Um, yeah. But this one hit my heart and, and complete oh. that narrative transport. Like, in a way, a book has oh. been a long time. So I love it. It's just gorgeous. And it and it reads like a love letter to books. On oh, top my of, God. Oh, I love God. It. It's so beautiful. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. So highly, highly recommend. All right, everyone, to join in the discussion on Twitter, follow me at Lonnie9Rich and Kelly at Dr. Kelly Jones and use the hashtag HowStoryWorks. 
How StoryWorks and everything Chipperish Media produces is made free and ad-free by the generous patrons who support us to the tune of a dollar a month or more and make it possible for us to define our goddamn terms. <laughs> Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out more. This episode of How StoryWorks was brought to you by the Chipperish Media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why How StoryWorks is coming to you free and ad-free right now. And this week's special message for our power producers... The best thing you can do for your writing is know who you are and work with yourself instead of against yourself. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you too can become a How Story Works producer. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or write a prologue if you must. You do you. <laughs> we will be back next time with the first episode of the first season, Building Character. Until then, justify those prologues, y'all, because I really like them. <laughs> <laughs> love what you love, baby. Love what you love. Yeah.